opinions expressed on I Care Out Loud are mine and those of my guests. They should not be considered the opinions of either Ocular Surgery News or Slack Incorporated, although you and I both know they should be. Hi, this is Dr. Daryl White, and welcome to another episode of I Care Out Loud, where if you're thinking it, we're saying it out loud. I thought maybe we should talk a little bit about dry eye. Anybody who's read any of my drivel in various Helio.com outlets know that dry eye is a pretty big deal for me. Let me say right at the outset that no one has to do dry eye to the level that I've done it or my colleagues who specialize in dry eye do it. But I do think that everyone, and that includes you retina guys too, need to be aware that dry eye is a big deal and it affects our patients pretty much all day, every day. In the spirit of my Conflict of Interest podcast, let me say that I have a relationship with almost everybody in the dry eye space. Pretty much anyone who has a medication or a device, either for testing or treatment, is someone with whom I have or have had a consulting relationship and a speaking relationship. At any given time, I may or may not be active, but that's more coincidence than anything that's strategic. So why dry eye? You know, dry eye is the hot dot in eye care right now. My brother's a hedge fund guy. He he thinks hot dot is uh, a cool term, so I've adopted it. What I mean by that is that everyone is interested in taking care of and treating dry eye. Why might that be? I think it has to do with three things, really. First of all, dry eye is ubiquitous. It's incredibly common. Years ago, six, seven million people. The numbers that are bandied about now are 30 million people with a diagnosis, but I think that that doesn't really take into account the visual symptoms for dry eye. If you take those into account, I think the number really in the United States is closer to 50 or 60 million. It's a big, big space. The other part of it is that the space is growing. More people are having dry eye symptoms, and the dry eye symptoms are affecting their life in more and greater ways. You just can't escape it. Lastly, we just can't ignore the fact that this represents a business opportunity for an awful lot of people. It represents a business opportunity for pharmaceutical companies and also a business opportunity for device companies. On the downside, ignoring dry eye kind of reduces some of the business opportunities for other companies that, at least if you're an anterior segment surgeon, are really interested in working with you on. The best example, obviously, is presbyopia correcting IOLs. If you have a shoddy ocular surface, your patient just isn't going to get the result that he or she deserves after investing their money and you investing your effort and expertise in putting any kind of presbyopia correcting IOL in their eye. You simply have to have that first thing that light hits be working as well as it possibly can. We want to have success in all of those things, of course, not only because that's what we do, but also because people are writing a check. It's a very different paradigm. And for the most part, at least in medically necessary procedures, it's pretty much the only part of medicine where that occurs. You don't see people upgrading their hip implants 
from a standard issue whatever with metal or plastic to the latest greatest carbon fiber fabric that or carbon fiber material that went into the B2B bomber or something like that they get what they get and it's to a large degree dependent on a combination of surgeon preference and the deep dark secrets that occur in the dungeons of hospitals where they decide what they're going to pay for but in ophthalmology we have a choice and if you fail to take into account the effect of dry eyes we may not get the results we're looking for and that may kind of tar the entire area so i think everybody should be dealing with dry eye let me tell you a little bit about my story with dry eye about Oh my gosh, I was probably in my 20s. I was a gas permeable contact lens wearer. For many, many years, I'd been an old-fashioned PMMA contact lens wearer. When I was wearing my PMMAs, I had the most comfortable eyes on the planet. Now, at about 10 o'clock at night, every night, my eyes were also pretty much beet red. And clearly, I had something going on. But yeah, who knew? Went to medical school, still wearing my gas perms started getting corneal edema. There is no oxygen transmission through the PMMA lens, and my corneas starved for oxygen, became edematous. That's when I switched to gas perms, and all of a sudden it became abundantly clear that I had a dry eye problem. All through medical school, all through my residency, all through the early years of my practice, I just put up with it, used artificial tears, um, did whatever I could do. My dry eye was actually diagnosed by one of Mike Lemp, Dr. Mike Lemp's fellows at Georgetown when I was a medical student. And finally, after years and years, I decided that I was going to have LASIK because I had a dry eye. Now, back in the mid to late 1990s, we were doing really great things with LASIK and sometimes getting mediocre results. And it turned out, as I discovered after I had my LASIK done, that LASIK actually caused dry eye in some people. Thus began my deep, deep, deep dive into the dry eye world. Now, I've made dry eye a thing, and it became really the lifeline for me when I had a big professional change. Really long story, really, really short. In the early 2000s, I had a business disagreement with my then partner, and we worked really hard for about six months to try to find a way that we could come to some kind of a mutually agreeable decision. And at the end of those six months, it became clear that we couldn't. Now, as those things so often do, we sadly ended up in a legal battle. And the, the short of it is that I lost in every which way you could lose. I thought I was right. My partner thought he was right. And in the legal outcome, I certainly did not turn out very well. My family wanted to stay here in Cleveland, and so we went into practice. And because of that legal outcome, I went into practice with no patient list and no insurance contracts and really no way to contact any of my referring physicians. What did we do? Well, we went out and we looked for dry eye patients. You may recall that Allergan did some really groundbreaking research in the time leading up to the um, the launch of Restasis. At the time, dry eye was felt to be a disease of the elderly, but Allergan's research showed that one of the other very common 
presenting scenes was in a much younger population. The archetypical patient was a woman between the ages of 35 and 55. She had three years of college education. She was married, part-time employed, had three children, and the annual salary in that family was about $75,000. Now, you can actually go out and buy lists of people who meet those characteristics, and that's what we did at SkyVision. We actually bought mailing lists, and in addition to that, we found some of the other characteristics of these women what magazines they read, what newspapers they subscribed to, what kinds of neighborhoods they lived in, what insurance policies they had, where their kids went to school. It's amazing how much information is out there and has been out there long before the days of Facebook and Twitter and Google. This all came from what you spend um, using your credit card, and it's been available for decades. We went out and marketed to these people. The other thing that Allergan taught us was that this particular archetypical patient was a three-generation decision maker when it came to medical care for her family. She, of course, decided for herself. She decided for her husband because everyone out there knows that we husbands are knuckleheads. She decided for her children because we're knuckleheads. She decided for her parents. And in many communities, people return to where they grew up. Cleveland happens to be one of those. And she decided for her in-laws because no matter what she did, no matter what happened, she was going to get blamed anyway. So she might as well take control so she didn't get blamed for something her knucklehead husband did. The other thing in the days prior to social media was that this patient was a connector. If you go back 10, 15, 20 years and think about how many of your friends you were in contact with on a weekly basis. And I used to ask this all the time. The women in my audiences would routinely be in contact, calling, seeing, going out of their way to communicate with no fewer than a dozen friends. Men, on the other hand, were really challenged to come up with one or maybe two people outside of their jobs with whom they went out of their way to make some kind of a connection. This actually is still very true in the era of social media. It's just that we have to add some zeros on the end of those numbers. There's still uh, at least a tenfold difference in how many people and how often women connect in comparison with men. If you make these people feel better, they tell everyone Dry eye has been a scourge for millions of people for an awfully long time. If you make someone feel better, she will tell everyone. That's how we built our practice. In the first year of SkyVision, first day in the office, we saw precisely zero patients. Day two, we saw one. Might have been a relative, not sure. It was a long time ago. But by the end of the year, we had 5,000 active patients on our rolls, and we had an electronic medical record back then, so we could keep track of that quite easily. And we got there by marketing to the dry eye patient. What's different now? What's different today? Well, in many ways, nothing. That patient is still out there. She's still a three-generation decision maker. And if you make her feel better, she still tells everyone. 
What's different in this day and age of the multi-screen lifestyle, which absolutely causes more dry eye, is that you now have an expanded population. Literally everyone who comes to your office sits in front of a computer for some part of the day. You have to, ex you have to expand your definition of computer, of course. It's not just the desktop like the one sitting on your desk that's got your EMR on it, but it's also laptops and iPads and cell phones. The cell phone is the most ubiquitous computer screen in the world. When we look at any screens, we blink less frequently and we blink less completely, and that has added, along with some nutritional changes in the United States, to evaporative dry eye caused largely due to a dysfunction in the oil portion of our tears. So these people are everywhere. Some of them will come into your office and they will let you know right away that they have a problem. At SkyVision, anybody is capable of starting the dry eye protocol if they hear from the patient that they have a dry eye. Some people make it really easy. So, Mrs. Pistolacleone, why would you like to see Dr. White? Well, my eyes are dry. Okay, that one's easy. Nobody misses that one. Burning, tearing, foreign body sensation, fatigue, and the killer app, the killer thing really is blurred vision. Blurred vision is really, really common in people who have dry eye. The cause of blurred vision, the, the second most frequent cause of blurred vision in your office is dry eye. The first most frequent cause, of course, is that I don't have my glasses on. But after problems of amotropia, you have dry eye as the second most frequent problem. So you don't have to look too very hard to find patients who have dry eye. They come in with really, really common complaints. The key next step is to decide that you're going to address that complaint. Now, to go all the way back to the original sentence in this podcast, you don't have to take care of dry eye like somebody who has a dry eye center of excellence or a dry eye shop like we do at Sky Vision. You don't have to have all the bells and whistles, and you don't have to seek the really difficult dry eye patient. But I think you should be taking care of the one that walks in who just is just too easy to diagnose and really shouldn't be ignored. Now, I would not feel badly at all if you send our favorite dry eye patient to a place like Sky Vision. My staff calls her Linda Blair. She looks like Linda Blair playing The Exorcist. She walks into the office. Her hair is all disheveled. Her makeup is dripping down her face. And she's very angry. She sounds something like this. My eyes are on fire. It's your fault. Fix me. Now, we love that patient because we know we're going to make her feel better no matter what happens. We have so many ways to get her to feel better than that, that she's going to leave the office at least a little bit happier. With apologies to the real Linda Blair, by the way, if any of you have seen a, a picture of, of Ms. Blair, now, she's about my age, and she is a stunningly beautiful woman, and by all accounts is actually one of the nicest human beings ever to walk the planet. So there, here's my public apology to Linda Blair for using her for my archetype for the, the really difficult dry patient over the years. If you simply listen to your patient, man, woman, young or old, 
they're going to tell you that they have a dry eye. Those people who tell you they have a dry eye, I think you probably should treat. It's pretty easy and you don't have to get too very complex and I don't think you have to do really too very much that you're probably already doing more than you're already doing. Write down the history, look at their cornea, look at their eyelids. People who have meibomian gland disease seem to make up about 75% of the folks who go in to see any kind of an eye doctor. We cause a bit of it with our glaucoma drops and we cause a little bit with uh, some of the antibiotics we use and we cause a little bit when we're continuing to, to do anti-VEGF injections and we're causing inflammation on the surface of the eye. But the main reasons that people have meibomian gland disease go way beyond that. Um, we can talk for hours about changes in nutritional policy in the United States and changes in how we make our food, industrialization of agriculture and making protein sources. But suffice it to say that 75% of your patients have meibomian gland disease. It's easy enough to treat it. Teach them how to clean their eyelids, ask them to heat their eyelids, and ask them to take re-esterified fish oil or take a... Uh, supplement that has black currant seed oil in it. Either of those are going to actually go quite a long way to help their dry eye. You could stop right there, but if you look at the cornea, and especially if you put a little bit of fluorescein in, you're going to diagnose yet more dry eye. And you don't have to get fancy here either. All you need to use is a fluorescein strip. If you put a little bit of BSS on a fluorescein strip and then just gently touch the inferior bulbar conjunctiva, ask your patient to blink a couple of times, voila, you're a dry eye doctor. If you see superficial punctate keratopathy, they have dry eye, they should be treated. You should count and count how long it takes for that tear film to start breaking up. One little dark spot on the cornea is when you stop your clock. Now, you don't need a stopwatch. You can do the old one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. Uh, you can do one 1,000, two 1,000, three 1,000. It's really horseshoes and hand grenades. If they have less than eight to 10 seconds of tear coverage, they have an early tear breakup time, and they have a dry eye which should be treated. You could be done here. You could call it a day and start doing other stuff. If they're truly symptomatic, you could start easily with artificial tears. There's some artificial tears that are right down the middle utility infielders that could be your go-to, and you could use them as your first shot across the bow. For that, I like Plain Jane Refresh. I like Refresh Optive Mega 3. It's got some flaxseed oil in it. And I like Blink, just regular Blink tears. All three of those are really good artificial tears, and they're well worth the extra money that people pay for them. You can get fancy. If the tear level is low, you can assume that they have some sort of an aqueous deficient component and try to use one of the hypotonic tears. Blink is one of them. Theratears is the other. If they have a luxurious tear layer, they've got a deep tear lake, but a really quick tear breakup time, and especially in this, the face of meibomian gland disease, you can use one of the oil-based artificial tears. The Refresh Uptive Mega-3 is one of them. 
Retain MGD, Sustained Balance, Optive Advanced. Those are the ones that are more readily available, and all of them work really well. Cleaning the eyelid margin can be as easy as just giving them a, a prescription written on a piece of paper for the over-the-counter commercially available lid wipes, and they can heat their eyelids with a sock filled with rice that they put in the microwave. Uh, I like a Bruder mask, B-R-U-D-E-R. They're available through your office, or you can actually just send the patient to Amazon. They cost $24 no matter where they get them. All of that's pretty easy. And guess what? You're now a dry eye doctor. You took care of a patient who had a problem, and the likelihood is that they're going to be noticeably better just for having done that. Now you've got a bit of a decision to make. Do I want to be a dry eye doctor who takes care of dry eye patients on an ongoing basis? If you do, then you have to decide that you're going to put in place some more complex protocols, if you wish. It can actually be as easy as just learning how to use the two non-steroid anti-inflammatory products that are on the market right now, Restasis, which is cyclosporin A in an emulsion called Endura, or Zydra, which is lafitograst in buffered saline. You have to learn how to use both. I'm sorry. I used to say that all you had to do was learn how to use one and get really good at it, but in our present day and age of pharmacy benefit manager-driven pharmaceutical decision-making, we just can't get away with learning how to use just one. It's a real bummer because it takes a while to, to figure out the nuances of these medications. It takes a while to figure out the nuances of how your patient is going to get to pay for them. But if you're going to take that next step, if you're going to take care of dry patients on an ongoing basis, then it behooves you to learn how to use both of them. Sometime downstream, we'll talk about that a little bit, and I've certainly written about it several times on, in my column on ocular surgery news and in blog posts going back several years. I think everyone should treat dry eye at least a little bit. At this stage, you can say, that's it. I'm good, not going any further, not going to invest in tear osmolarity, not going to invest in MMP9 testing, I'm not going to invest in the ability to image meibomian glands or look at the oil layer in the front of the eye, and I'm certainly not going to invest in advanced treatments like uh, thermal pulsatile treatments or intense pulse light. And... I would say that that's a totally reasonable thing to do unless you really, really want to be a dry eye shop. Someday we'll talk about the advanced dry eye shop. We'll talk about the advanced dry eye practice. At this stage, you've already helped. You've helped immeasurably a very significant percentage of your patients. Simply having them back to see how they're doing will, number one, help you decide, do you want to take care of these folks on an ongoing basis? And number two, are they doing okay? Do they need more care? Many people will not. Those patients who need more care can certainly be referred. I can't think of a single city that uh, I've looked at that doesn't have half a dozen people who really enjoy taking care of advanced dry eye. Sometimes they're optometrists. 
there are some really, really uh, talented optometrists in our country who are doing some pretty cool stuff with dry eye. But most of the time, it's an anterior segment person, often someone with corneal training, but not always. I did not do a fellowship, and many of the people I know in the dry community did not. You don't need a corneal fellowship to be a dry eye specialist. But we're out there. The bottom line, I think, is that dry eye is real. It's common. It's probably one of the three most common things that come into your office. And these people really deserve the very best that you have to offer them. I think it's good medicine. And frankly, it's good business. If you make these people feel better, they will send you more patients. I think we should all be dry eye doctors. So that's it for this episode. I'm Daryl White. This is I Care Out Loud, where if you're thinking about it, I'm saying it. We'll see you soon.